New Zealand adopted Jack Watling is with us on the second anniversary of the war in Ukraine. Jack is the Senior Research Fellow for Land Warfare at the Royal United Services Institute, RUSI, the world's oldest and the UK's leading defence and security think tank, and he's a global fellow at the Wilson Centre in the US. He's won international media awards for his analysis, and he's spent periods of time since this war began with Ukraine's armed forces. He also spends time with both the British military and the US Marine Corps. He's the author of the book, The Arms of the Future, Technology and Close Combat in the 21st Century. Kia ora, Jack. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, Jim. The general question first, and I'll get into detail, but since we last spoke, what impressions have you formed of the future of this war in Ukraine from what you've seen lately? I think since we last spoke, the situation has deteriorated quite considerably. Obviously, the Ukrainian offensive, which was ongoing at that time, has not achieved its objectives. But more importantly, there is now a very serious question mark over the longevity of international support, particularly from the United States. And while Europe is making investments to support Ukraine, there will be a gap between investment and output, which means that in the medium term, United States support is critical. And so the political situation in Washington is putting the Ukrainians in a very dangerous position at the front with quite significant ammunition shortages. And the key challenge at this point is whether we can get over that period of scarcity. I've heard US commentators, just to follow up on that point, saying that this period of scarcity, uh, if soon remedied, will put Ukraine back in the game, as it were. I wonder if that's a bit optimistic. It is a little optimistic, um, because if the taps turn back on and the United States starts to supply ammunition, it will be sufficient for Ukraine to blunt the Russians, to hold the line. The question arises as to whether the Ukrainians are then able to build for a new round of offensive operations. That will take considerably longer, and it requires the working out of a training pipeline and an equipping pipeline. The challenge there is that so long as there is uncertainty over how much ammunition the Ukrainians have, they can't formulate a plan as to how many troops they can pull off the line to be trained. Because if they do not receive ammunition, then most of their reserves are going to be fixed in the defence. And so there's a there will be an extended lag by virtue of the fact that until the question of how much materiel is coming is solved, there isn't a sound basis from which to conduct planning. The International Monetary Fund is predicting strong growth for Russia's economy this year, despite the sanctions imposed. European nations trail in Russia's wake in this respect, surprisingly. And in fact, of course, you're seeing recession up there in a a few countries. This also augurs badly for Ukraine, doesn't it? There are two elements there. So we have to be quite careful with that data. The Russian economy is growing, but it's worth noting that the Russian government is essentially injecting a huge amount of its own reserves into the defense industries. And so, of course, production is up. Uh, there are more jobs because there are, you know, the requirements to have more shifts at ammunition factories and so on. Um, that isn't necessarily a sustainable economic model, partly because the Russians are having to spend their reserves to, to enable this. Um, so the Russian economy is likely to peak in late 24. 
um, it may run into more significant problems around 2026, which means that the, the length of this war is very important as to whether the Russians can sustain this effort. Having said that, you are right that sanctions are not going to have a significant effect as many predicted, partly because a majority of the world's countries are not participating in them. And so the Russians are able to sell their oil, gas and other raw materials, sometimes at a reduced price, but it actually often you know, in some areas, an inflated price because of disruption to the market caused by the conflict. And so, so long as they have a consistent ability to generate revenue, the Russian government can prime the pump of its economy. Getting back to your mention of the training and equipping pipeline, what does Volodymyr Zelensky need now that he doesn't have and isn't getting anytime soon? Uh, the critical ones are artillery ammunition, replacement barrels, spare parts for the howitzers that they control, uh, air defense munitions. That's the short-term need. In the longer term, you need the ability to take recruits, put them through a longer period of training than uh, was received last year. So probably something like 12 weeks rather than five. Um the ability to put those units through collective training and then vehicles and weapon systems for those units to receive. Um, the issue is that all of that will take probably eight months at least. And so the units that you take off the line to generate um, are not ones that are then available to rotate into the defensive positions on the front line. Because there's a, a growing reluctance, isn't there, among Ukrainian men to go up to the line? Uh, I'd say no. I think this is a, a narrative that's pushed very strongly. Recruitment processes inside Ukraine are somewhat chaotic. Um, and so you have a lot of instances of some units with being oversubscribed with people wanting to volunteer. But then those who are turned away because the places are filled not being pushed to other units. Um, but the bigger problem is, while the Ukrainians may be able to generate replacements for those who are injured in their existing units, in order to do this process of rotation and force generation, they need a large body of people that are not already committed, who can train together. And the issue there is, if you pull a large body of people into the military, um, but you don't have officers who can command them, because you... you you know, haven't had professional military education being run for the last couple of years, um, and you don't have weapons for them, and you don't have places where they can stay and train that are safe, then those individuals are not actually going, they're going to be taken out of the economy, but they're not actually turning into effective troops. And so until the process is ironed out, um, the Ukrainian government has a limited ability to make mobilization effective. There are people there um, and the Ukrainians can generate personnel, but just generating people is not the same as generating fighting units. Well, how bad for Ukraine is the loss of the town we've been hearing about, uh, Avdivka and Donetsk? I mean, is there a danger of the entire front collapsing as the warmer weather starts to arrive? Because Ukraine seems to have lost a terrible number of men in this battle, I know the Russians have too, and of munitions, and also munitions, Jack. So munitions are probably the critical thing. Um, the fall of Avdiivka in itself is 
not hugely consequential. Um, however, the way that it fell is indicative of the problems that the Ukrainians are going to increasingly face. So firstly, a shortage of ammunition means that it's difficult for them to conduct counter-battery fire, so firing back at Russian artillery. That means that the Russian artillery can concentrate much more on the front. Similarly, the shortage of air defense munitions means it is harder for them to keep the Russian Air Force, the VKS, away. And that means that the Russians can bring very heavy ordnance down on their positions. It is certainly true that if those investments are not made and they are not made competently and you do not see an increase in output, then Russian production will um, and their battlefield situation will reach a point where you're not able to turn it around in time. We are approaching that tipping point, um, but we still have the opportunity to change that trajectory. In terms of that sort of steady enthusiasm you're describing among Ukrainian men and women uh, to go up to the line, uh, I saw on the PBS News News Hour just very recently the claim that the average age of Ukrainian soldiers is now 43. And that seems surprising. I think in World War II, if you were 42, you were too old to fight. Is that true as well or not? Um, I don't think there's great data out there that's public about the exact age across units. So I'd be cautious about people being too specific. But it is certainly true that most Ukrainian troops are in their 30s and 40s. Um, there are some very important reasons for that. One of them is that because the Ukrainians have been able to only deliver a relatively short training package to their troops, they have prioritized the mobilization of troops who have prior military experience. And they had a much larger army uh, in the 2010s. Um, and then they had a large body of those people who served in the Joint Forces Operations Area in the Donbass. And those people are predominantly in their 30s and early 40s. And so the people that they were targeting for recruitment were in that pool of people who had prior military experience and were in those age brackets. There is another factor, which is that the Ukrainians are very reluctant to forcibly mobilize those between 18 and 25. And that's because if you look at the demographics in the country, there is a, a very limited number of people who are in that age bracket. It was just a period where not many children were had. And so the Ukrainians are concerned about the consequences of of having a generation wiped out, essentially, if they forcibly mobilize those individuals who otherwise would be Ukraine's future. So the inference that young men are avoiding the war uh, is incorrect based on a false supposition, you're basically saying? Yes, they, they haven't necessarily been encouraged. Uh, and in many cases, you know, if you are a young software developer um, and Ukraine had a very you know blossoming uh, IT industry, for example, are you more appropriate than a 38-year-old prior veteran to occupy a defensive machine gun position? Or are you better off being pushed into uh, intelligence analysis or um, programming UAVs, drones, or working in the protection of critical national infrastructure and, and the communication system? So there's also an element of the skills that are more heavily represented in the younger generation are actually, in, in many cases, more useful away from the front. So there's a lot of complicated aspects to this. I mean, it's worth just doing the comparison, right? Ukraine has an overall population of around 40 million people. Six million people have displaced from the country as refugees. 
so if we, let's say 34 million people, it's a comparable population to France. It's a larger population, in fact, to France in the, in the First World War. France in the First World War was losing, you know, almost a million personnel per year, right? Their overall casualties were over 3 million personnel. Um, Ukraine has lost a fraction of that. And so the idea that there is a, an absolute shortage of personnel to recruit is incorrect. Um, but as I say, if you don't have a process to turn recruited personnel into functional combat units, there is very little point pulling them out of the economy. Larger issues. Is it possible this war won't end, that it will turn into an impasse? I mean, no deal seems to be credible. Putin presumably won't sign anything that might turn out to be his death warrant, and Ukraine, we here won't trust any agreement that doesn't have a guaranteed protection by NATO. Is that a fair assessment, that there's no clear path to a, a deal? So the Russian view is if they can break the link between Ukraine and its allies this year and start achieving significant battlefield gains at the end of this year and into 2025, then they can essentially force Kiev surrender on their terms in 2025 to 2026. Um, so they have a, a clear timeline that they think they're working to. Um, if the war is is going to militarily extend significantly beyond that, i.e. the Russians do not make substantial progress and they don't break the relationship between Ukraine and Europe this year, then, as I say, the Russian economy starts to look much less favourable. Um, there is the scope for the Russians not just wanting to enter negotiations, but actually wanting to negotiate, which is a fundamental difference, right? Because in one, you're making concessions and in the other, you're giving ultimatums. Um, and if they are prepared to negotiate because they can see that this actually doesn't work for them in the long term either, then the question of security guarantees to Ukraine so that anything that is agreed is a lasting peace rather than a temporary peace becomes absolutely crucial for the Ukrainians. They can't dictate or determine what security guarantees they might receive. That is up to Ukraine's partners. There is an agreement across NATO that the trajectory for Ukraine is to join NATO at some point, but that will be quite a, a long process. And so the question is, what is the intermediary package between NATO membership and um, their current position that means that the Ukrainians feel that what is on the table makes them safe? Um, it's very important to note the experience of the Budapest Memorandum, where they were given guarantees in order to, in exchange for giving up their nuclear weapons, uh, of their territorial integrity. And as far as the Ukrainians are concerned, and it is how you interpret the document is disputed in this sense, um, the UK and the US have not really stood up to what they signed up to. Um, that's not the UK and the US's position. But the fact that the Ukrainians see the Budapest memorandum in that way means that they will have quite a high bar on what they see as a genuine protection. The crystal ball is murky, isn't it? I mean, it sounds like from what you're saying that the preferred Ukrainian option is actually battlefield victory. That would actually satisfy... They're still aiming for that because that would seem to satisfy them uh, most out of all those options. Absolutely. And, and even if you take the view that uh, a total battlefield victory, right, the full liberation of the occupied territories, etc., is uh, and, and Russia's withdrawal and cessation of long range fires and so on is um, a, a less than likely outcome, 
you need to threaten the Russians with the prospect of battlefield defeats in order to have significant leverage in negotiations. Um, and so even if you are not actually pursuing that total objective, you still need to regenerate offensive combat power and to threaten to be able to liberate territory. Um, that's very important, which is why uh, I don't think Ukraine's partners can try and turn the conflict into some sort of stalemate and then anticipate that the Russians will talk and negotiate over that. If it hits a stalemate, I think the Russians are quite comfortable extending the pressure. Quoting from one of the wire services, Jack, Russia is preparing for a future war with the West that could unfold sometime in the next 10 years, according to a new report from the Estonian Foreign Intelligence Service. Do you give this credence militarily? World War Three is being flung around in all sorts of messages and dispatches now and reports. Could Russia hold off NATO? So it very much depends on the context and what NATO does. Um, if NATO ramps up defence production so that European defence industry can sustain large-scale combat operations, there are sufficient ground forces in Europe to defeat the Russian military. However, if those forces do not have ammunition, then obviously they are not going to be able to sustain a prolonged fight. So um, that's point number one. Point number two, at the moment, without the United States... Uh, training munitions and other things in NATO air forces are quite shallow. And there's a lot of critical dependencies on the US. Now, if the US is forced to engage in a, a serious deterrence effort against China, then its capacity to deal with the Russians in Europe simultaneously is rather constrained. You know, the Russians will have to regenerate a lot of capability before they would be prepared to conduct another large-scale conflict anyway. And so there is time to take that risk off the table. But it's precisely that point that um, people tend to feel complacent until it's too late. So you do that, give that credence, don't you? It's not just the arms industry and people with particular political points of view and retired generals and such talking the, uh, the ante up in terms of threat. You actually give that... Uh, serious consideration as a possibility? Uh, yes, it's entirely possible. That doesn't mean that it's likely. Yeah. But if you sit on your hands and pretend that it's impossible, then you make it much more likely. Just switching to Gaza, if I may, before we let you go, the warning's gone out from one of the Israeli war cabinet members that unless Hamas frees all hostages held in Gaza by the 10th of March, this is the deadline we're hearing, the start of Ramadan, that the Israelis will go into Rafah. What is your appraisal of the chances of the Israelis achieving any sort of tactical success there if this happens? So tactically, the Israeli Defence Forces are trying to destroy uh, Hamas's weapons caches, command and control infrastructure, leadership at a battalion level, and to render the battalions themselves combat ineffective. Um, they are achieving fairly significant progress in doing that, in degrading Hamas's military capability. And so as they systematically raid into more and more of the Strip, they will uh, 
destroy an awful lot of Hamas's infrastructure and break up a lot of the cell structures that um, allow its battalions to function. That is not the same as defeating the organization as a political entity, which I think is much less likely. Um, but what it likely does is significantly reduces the scale at which Hamas can orchestrate and conduct operations. Um, and so if we think about this as preventing the capacity for another 7th of October from the Israeli point of view, uh, where you know very large numbers of Hamas fighters were able to synchronize their attack into Israel, um, then they may achieve tactical success. They will also, of course, have a very severe humanitarian consequences for uh, going into what has become a major refuge point in the Gaza Strip for a large number of people displaced by the fighting. Um, and they also don't have a long-term plan for how to manage the Strip. There is a particular tension because if the Israelis occupy the Strip, actually set up a, a military uh, administration and control it directly, legally it stops being uh, managed under the laws of armed conflict and it becomes under it falls under the laws of occupation and at that point the israelis are directly responsible for the humanitarian situation which means that they will need to pay for the reconstruction of hospitals they will need to ensure that people are fed and so on so long as it is under the laws of armed conflict their obligation is to uh, enable humanitarian uh, activity and to not block it but they're not responsible fundamentally for the humanitarian situation. And so, so long as third parties can get trucks and aid in, then uh, the Israelis are uh, meeting a significant proportion of their obligations. The problem, of course, is that they want to remove Hamas as a political entity, but unless they are actually occupying the Strip, then Hamas is probably going to remain the political entity in Gaza. And so how they manage that transition is something that I don't think the Israelis have a clear answer about yet. We are continuing to see a significant uh, exchange of fire between the Israelis and Hezbollah on the northern border in Lebanon. And it's very important to note that the Israelis have had to withdraw their civilian population from a number of towns in the north. Um, those civilians obviously will at some point will want to return to their homes. And in order to return, the Israelis are going to have to explain why the situation is safer than it was before, which either means they need some sort of agreement with Hezbollah, that's very unlikely, or it means that Hezbollah needs to be pushed back from the border so that there are not such a weight of munitions that are being routinely fired into these settlements. At that point, you were talking about a large-scale IDF operation against Hezbollah in Lebanon. And of course, then there's the risk that Hezbollah starts to use large volumes of its rocket arsenal and we see a full-scale conflict going into Lebanon. So there is a really significant uh, danger of escalation in that direction. Um, I would say the danger increases as the situation in Gaza itself stabilizes. Um, but there is a, you know, no one comes out well from that conflict. Um and so there is a, a huge amount of political pressure to discourage both sides from conducting activities that would likely see an escalation to the north. Dr. Jack Watling, thank you. Always good to have your expertise and uh, also really appreciate your time. Good to talk to you again. Likewise, Jim.